The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. I was originally going to do Isaiah 55, but after hearing Charlie's legalism on drinks, I think Romans 14 may be more appropriate. Um, Talk about the liberty we have to enjoy the good things that God has created, and everything is to be enjoyed to his glory so long as it is done with thanksgiving. And uh, that's in scripture in Paul's epistle to Timothy. A couple things before I begin. One thing, I'm really thankful to God for many, many people, uh, but even like Craig held up that stack of books, I would have never had anybody publish anything I wrote if I hadn't written twice with Elise Fitzpatrick, who originally got me into this and was so kind, and I think I probably took three or four years off of her life when she was editing the first book that I tried to write, where I would write thousands of words that she had to compress and fix so that the publisher would accept them and people would read them. And I'm very thankful for that. And I'm also so thankful for Craig in the sense that uh, I feel like I've been an ordinary pastor, ordinary counselor, and Craig has had these amazing visionary ideas for IBCD, and I just happen to be the person providing some of the content, but what he's done with the the Karen Discipleship and the observation videos, he just had a real sense of what our movement needed, and even he talked about the winsome tone. Uh, Some of my old videos weren't that winsome, and he made me reshoot them in an empty room as kind of penance for my harshness. that I would be kinder and gentler, which was good preparation for becoming a seminary professor where there are more challenges. Uh, The question I've been asked probably over 100 times, and for the other 150 of you, I haven't answered the question yet. Well, how are things going in Charlotte and moving away from 26 years in the same church and uh, the 10 years as director of IBCD and over 20 years working with IBCD? And we knew when we went that it would be hard to leave a situation we love and people we love and people we've been in relationship with, some of them now 30 years. We did not go to be happy. We went because we thought that would be the best way we could serve the Lord. And I'm still convinced we did the right thing. It's been hard in many ways. I'm thankful the Lord has helped us. We've sensed his help. Uh, I was sharing with people at lunch yesterday that Things happened, especially in the first few months, where I remember telling myself, you know, I could get really depressed right now, and that would be really bad. But I did not get depressed by the grace of God, even though there were very many hard circumstances and some discouragements and a lot of loss. Uh, And the Lord has helped us, and he's given us some wonderful friends, some of whom are here with us, who have been a great support to us. And and so we're learning a new job, and uh, we miss what we used to do. We're learning to do a new thing. And kind of my answer is, you know, ask me in five years and I'll tell you whether I'm glad I did this. I knew it would take a few years before we would be able to adjust to a new life. Um, Craig puts me last at all these conferences. One may be that I only get the most committed people. The people who were less committed all have gone home by now, they've had enough. So I get to speak to the most sophisticated and refined audience. But also, there's something going on with this cord. Yes, it's annoying to me too. (laughs) We'll reshoot it. So, no, just kidding. (laughs) Nicer tone. Round two. Just kidding. Sorry, I don't know how that's going. One more thing. Sorry. 
so humiliating. <laughs> but part of what Craig has asked me to do in, in my role at the end of the conference, he calls it like a closer, where the closer to baseball game is supposed to, if your team's winning, which I think right now we're winning, um, you know, supposed to kind of pitch the last inning and... But my job, uh, I've often perceived, is kind of pull things together. And the way I want to do that is in two ways. One is to take a passage that I love that I think really speaks to the heart of the problem of addiction and kind of expound some scripture in Isaiah 55. And then also just give some principles at the end. It's all in your notes. My notes are the opposite of Ed Welch. They're very thorough, and they also don't have holes in them, which you will be very thankful for. Uh, it's all filled in already. Uh, just some principles, really, that would be gleaning from what the others have been saying as well. I read their books, and uh, I know where they were going. Um, you know, at a conference on addictions, many of us can come to this and say, I've never smoked pot. I've never been drunk. I've, I've never been a compulsive gambler, so I'll be here so I can help others. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, there's no temptation which has come upon you except what is common to man. And even though I don't know what it's like to have a craving for alcohol or cocaine or even what it feels like to be drunk, and I'm thankful that God has spared me from that, um, I do know what it's like to be tempted by other things. There are things in my life that are my areas of weakness. And the other speakers have been bringing this out, that why do people drink? Why do people get drunk? And it's because life is stressful, there's worry, there's emotional pain, and the substance, the drug, whatever it is, promises a better feeling. It promises relief. It, it makes the world seem better, as, as Dr. Hodges said. And we all have something. And before you were a Christian, there was probably one or two things that you would turn to, but even after you became a Christian, you still have something probably when life is really hard and you feel down. What is it? And some people, they feel like snacking. And it's going to be that box of Oreos that's sitting in the pantry and think, man, if I just had a half a dozen of those, but then soon it's all gone and it would, that would make me feel better. For some, it's you get online and you start shopping and you realize, boy, that iPhone 6 I have, that's over three years old right now. And let's see if I want to get the Samsung or the iPhone 7 or wait for the iPhone 8. And you kind of, that gets your mind off your problems. And you think that possession will feel, make you feel better. For some, it's pornography. And that gives you a buzz. And Charlie could have told you what pornography does. There's been, there have been studies done about what pornography does to the brain. And it's mostly harmful, but it's giving a buzz. And then we all have certain situations in life that do tempt us. And even in that way, we'll be different from each other. Uh, for some people, it's financial worries. For some people, it's relationship failures. It's your kids. It's your work. You know, you, you had a horrible week. You're afraid you're going to lose your job. And you're on your way home. And you're not sure they're going to be happy to see you when you get there. And so you're tempted to stop off at the bar on your way back and, or at the mall and get a fix. As we think about what we've called addictions, and addiction isn't even a biblical word. A biblical word would be what? Like slavery, right? You were slaves to sin, Paul says in, in Romans 6. I think it's also an area where we can see the different approach between what we as biblical counselors do 
and what everybody else does in terms of popular psychological approaches. In secular psychology, and this is true of many problems, their description of behavior is generally accurate. Their interpretation is wanting, and their cure is generally pathetic. But if you think, well, how does secular psychology look at various addictions? Uh, their definitions are pretty good. You're out of control, you're helpless, you're self-destructive, you harm others. Um, and, but their interpretation of what's going on is badly failed. And there's an American Society of Addiction Medicine that released a definition of addiction. And they had 80 experts over a four-year process, no doubt with government funding. And they say addiction is a chronic brain disorder and not simply a behavior problem involving alcohol, drugs, gambling, or sex. And then it says, at its core, addiction isn't just a social problem or a moral problem or a criminal problem, it is a brain problem whose behaviors manifest in all these other areas. The disease about, is about brains, not drugs. It's about underlying neurology, not outward action. And neurology is the big thing in secular counseling right now, is it, you know, because they don't understand that we're both body and soul. All they've got is a body. And, and your thoughts and feelings and desires are coming out of your brain. And, and Dr. Hodges said that's a, the body's a real influence. But since they are atheists when it comes to the soul, all they can believe in is the body. And so neurology and the study of how all that stuff works is all they have to go on. Um, there's a Dr. Raju Hajela, uh, president of the Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine says, you know, disease creates distortions in thinkings, feelings, and perceptions which drive people to behave in ways that are not understandable to others around them. Simply put, addiction is not a choice. Addictive behaviors are a manifestation of the disease, not a cause. He says, we need to stop moralizing, blaming, controlling, or smirking at the person with the disease of addiction and start creating opportunities for individuals and families to get help in providing assistance and choosing proper treatment. Uh, one of the presidential candidates in the last election, and probably not the one most of you would have voted for, made the statement on Twitter, addiction is a disease, not a moral failing. Those people aren't really in a good position to help, are they? I'm glad to have people like Chris Moles when he talked about uh, anger and, and abuse, and you have people like Mark Shaw and Ed Welsh, where they understand the problem, right? Uh, we, in biblical counseling, our interpretation is it's sin. We've been in Mark 7 several times. He said it's not what you eat that makes you corrupt. It's what comes out of your heart. That our hearts are fallen. We are sinful. Having been made in the image of God, we turned away from God as, as we went through Genesis 3, uh, more than once actually in the course of the week. It's the heart being deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So a totally different uh, description. Well, in terms of interpretation of the behavior that we observe as being the same. Well, what's the goal of secular therapy? Uh, enhanced human well-being. Uh, the American Psychological Association says, through psychology, psychologists help people of all ages live happier, healthier, and more productive lives. The National Institute of Drug Abuse, the primary goal of addiction counseling is to help a client achieve and maintain abstinence from addictive chemicals and behavior, and the second goal is to help the client to recover from the damage. But, you see, what do we say the chief end of man is? It's not that we can all be self-actualized and happy. 
And the, somebody, if he is still a child of the devil, is no better off if he exchanges the idol of drug addiction or alcohol addiction for materialism or sex or self. That, as Dr. Hodges said, that the, you're, you're in the right place when you'd rather please God than breathe. To glorify God. And, and that's you know, one of our biblical counseling verses we use a lot is Colossians 1.28. So our goal isn't that people be happy and self-actualized. Paul says that we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So that's our goal. Our goal is that people would be made like Christ. And then what about how do we approach the cure? Well, uh, you could go through, we haven't actually spent the time going through the 12 steps, and then there, there's talk therapy, and I've read online all the, the different approaches, group therapy, uh, the different attempts at cure, but all they're doing is they're polishing the outside of a tomb. What do people need? Well, it's what we've referenced in, in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. You were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified. The only true cure for slavery to sin is redemption, the transformation. And, and any counseling that doesn't found itself on the gospel is not going to produce behavior that's pleasing to God. It's not going to transform lives to make us what God has designed us to be. It will fall short. Now, some of it by common grace, you know, I'm happy for there to be fewer drunks driving around on the streets, whether they're believers or not, right? So there can be some common grace good done by these programs, but they are failing to achieve what humankind needs, which is reconciliation with God who made us that we could, as Ed brought out, have our proper pre-fall humanness restored, to be what God originally ordained that humankind would be, mankind would be, that we would be remade into his image, purified of sin, living for his glory, and the greatest pleasure of our lives would be in him and not in the idolatries of the world. We alone offer that help. Again, I'm not saying we should shut down everybody else, but it's not solving the real problem. And when I've counseled people who have struggled with slavery to sin, life-dominating sins, and when I've counseled myself, Isaiah 55 has been a favorite passage, and I've been really thankful. Nobody's jumped into this and pounded on it. Well, you know, when you're the last speaker, I've had conferences where I'm doing this with my notes while the others are talking, like, well, I don't have that to say anymore. Uh, so I'm so thankful to the other speakers. They left me something in Isaiah 55. Um, I'm gonna read the first five verses for now. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will turn to you, run to you, because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And this passage presents our slavery to sin using food and drink as a picture, as an illustration, as an analogy. 
And I'm gonna cover some of the rest of the passage as well, but it's, a couple things are going on here. One is there's an evangelistic appeal to the lost. You're, you've spent your whole life serving idols. They've never once made you happy. They've never once given you what they promised. They promise you freedom, but they give you nothing but slavery, as Peter says in 2 Peter 2. And by the grace of God, God is saying, and it, you even bring it down in verses six and seven, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And actually, Spurgeon preached on this passage 18 times, and he loved it just as an evangelistic appeal to the lost. That God is offering foolish idolaters the opportunity to come and find what he really made us for, to find our satisfaction in him. Uh, and then for thirsty Christians, because we're not yet what we will be, and we are still prone to wander. We're still prone in the stresses, anxieties of life to turn back to our old idols and to go eat the polluted food that will do nothing but make us sick. And I find for myself and for the people I try to help that the great need we have is to learn how to do what this passage is describing, to learn how to feast daily at the Lord's table, to learn to find our satisfaction in Him. I mean, everybody here would probably agree it is a good thing to find your satisfaction in God, right? Idols are bad, God is good. And yet, in the moment when the guy who's addicted to porn fires up the internet, closes the door, he doesn't really believe God is all that satisfying in that moment. He really thinks that porn is gonna make him feel better. Or the person who stops by the bar on his way home from work, or the person who gets out his marijuana, or whatever the temptation may be. But as we're tempted to go back to those old idols to learn how to feast at the Lord's table. I, I love the description of conversion in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine, he says, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That's what conversion is. Now for them, there were probably literal idols of wood and stone and metal, and they rejected those images to turn to serve the living God. But we were as much idolaters as those in the ancient world were. We just had different idols. Conversion is turning away from those idols, but you know, John even warns in his epistle, but brothers, turn from idolatry, beware. It can still capture you. And any methodology other than the one we've been teaching you this weekend merely offers to exchange one idol for another. Uh, the idol of drunkenness for the idol of self-actualization. Uh, the idol of substance abuse of other kinds for success in some earthly sense. We offer the opportunity to have a, an everlasting and abundant life that is the best possible life, not just now, but forever. Again, nobody else can do that. Uh, context in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, as a prophet, is, had a job I would not enjoy, and it's summarized in chapter six when the Lord says, who will go? Here I am, send me. 
But what's he said to do? To basically preach to people who will never listen because Judah was turning from God and he was going to give them warning. They would not listen and the judgment is going to come through the Babylonians. And that's the first part of the book. But then in the latter part of the book, there's hope because God is merciful to his people. He's going to one day send Cyrus, who is named, and the people who have been sent into exile are going to be brought back into the land and there's going to be blessing. But that's not the ultimate hope. In the most famous chapter in Isaiah's chapter 53, there's going to be the suffering servant who will come and bring redemption, a much better redemption than Cyrus would bring in you know, centuries before Christ. As Christ would come, he would bring the ultimate blessings of the covenant. And Isaiah 55, when this invitation is given, is really a description of those blessings that Christ brings. Uh, in verse 2, uh, he says, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? And, and that's the idolatry. There's actually a similar packed pattern in Proverbs 9 where at the beginning of the chapter, Lady Wisdom has a banquet. At the end of the chapter, Madam Folly has a banquet. They both invite you to their banquet. Where are you going to eat? Well, the Israelites, you read the Old Testament, they kept turning to idols from the golden calf to the idols of Canaan to the idols of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And after the exile, they'd be tempted to do it again. And we're just like them. When 1 Corinthians 10 says we should be learning from them, Hebrews says don't be like they were and harden your heart when God is speaking to you. We too turn to idols. And they look good, they make big promises, but they don't bring satisfaction. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of a representation of that, isn't it? I mean, we, we have the American dream, we have kind of the Solomonic dream in the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's a guy that had every single thing on earth you could hope to have. And many of us just want one or two of those things, and we think that's gonna make us happy. And Solomon said, I had as much of that as you could possibly get, and it's all vanity. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear with hearing. Uh, we think material wealth will make us happy. And uh, again, this is what the idols are. If I just had blank, then life would be good. If I just owned my own house, if I just had the right job, if I just had the new super duper phone, whatever the thing is we think. And, and Solomon said, well, yeah, I, I tried that. <laughs> He says in Ecclesiastes 2, I enlarged my works, I built houses, planted vineyards, made gardens, fruit trees, ponds. I had all these servants, slaves. I possessed flocks and herds larger than all those who preceded me. I collected silver and gold, treasure of kings, provinces. You know, you, even you watch certain news channels, right? They're always ever buy gold, buy silver, you'll be secure. He says, I had a lot of that stuff. <laughs> That's not the answer. Substance abuse. Verse 3 of chapter 2, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my, wine was while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven for the few years of their lives. Uh, he had wine. And many people, that's where they go. Entertainment. He had servants and uh, laughter. <sighs> Even food. Uh, I had a breakout session on gluttony yesterday. You don't hear a lot of biblical counseling conferences talk about gluttony, 
the, the idol of food, the addiction to overeating. Part of it is you look around and not too many of us are comfortable talking about that. It's much more socially acceptable, but it's the same thing. And as Mark was going through Proverbs 23 last night, in the end about the, the sorrows of drunkenness and substance abuse, uh, shortly before that, he says, don't be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. And see, that's where my struggle will be. That when I'm discouraged because I got negative reviews from students or I'm discouraged because I've been praying for my lost adult sons and they don't seem to have an interest in the things of God, I don't feel like smoking pot or getting a drink, but sometimes what would make me feel better right now? Costco has these giant bags of kettle corn. (laughs) And I could down one of those in a couple days. (laughs) Whatever it may be. And and they're good feelings. See, I, I know what it is to get the buzz. I've not had the drunk buzz or the pot buzz, but I get the food buzz. And but then in Ecclesiastes, who has woe, who has sorrow, and it's about eating too, and now you can't sleep, and now you don't want to look at a scale. Um, and also in North Carolina, they got Bluebell. That is the one good thing. Bluebell and Cracker Barrel, the two good things, I guess, about moving 2,500 miles away. But again, the kettle corn and Bluebell aren't sinful. But they can be something to which you turn sinfully. And then sexual sin, again, Solomon was ruined by that. He had all these concubines and wives. And sexual pleasure gives you a big buzz. Pornography, adultery, everything else. Uh, Worldly accomplishments, Solomon was that as well. You know, some people could even be addicted to fantasy baseball. I heard a guy one time, I don't remember I heard it, but he was talking about how when he feels kind of stressed, he just turns to his fantasy baseball. I don't know if you heard that or not. Um, I've referenced it. I'm going to read the verses. 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter's describing this. Speaking, verse 18, speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they enticed by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So if you want to use a better word than addiction, it's enslaved. And everything to which we are addicted or enslaved, whatever your drug of choice may be, it always promises you a payoff. This will make you feel better. This will make you happy. But to seek from any earthly thing what God alone can offer is nothing less than idolatry. Uh, Ezekiel talks about the idols of the heart that people had. Jeremiah warns, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And I'm just reviewing what you've been hearing. It's a worship disorder. Paul warns of those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Is pleasure wrong? No, so long as you don't love pleasure more than God. But when you rather seek earthly pleasure, whatever that pleasure is, even legitimate pleasures, above God, you're an idolater. 
And what the passage in Isaiah 55 is getting at is that it never satisfies. See, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Uh, you know, psychologists will say that we always act in self-interest and uh, there's a sense in which that observation is true as well. You spend your time and your money on what you think will make you happy, what you think is most fulfilling and most satisfying in life. But this is saying how foolish we are. We're, we're taking a, our whole life savings and going to the store and buying plastic bread and stinky water and thinking we're having, gonna go have a feast. And we're all sinners enough to know every time you've done this, never once has it satisfied you. And this is what you could say to the girls at Vision of Hope or the men in uh, drunkenness ministry that has, has this idol ever once served you well? That's how deceptive sin is, the deceitfulness of sin, that it, it says it's gonna make you happy. And, and, and even if there's a little, there's always a little buzz at the front end. You get that new phone. And then it takes a bath. <laughs> or even worse, a new one comes out that's better than yours. And it was exciting for a couple of days, but you know, the, the psalmist says in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days. It's not just your money, it's your time. How do we spend our time? You know, video games, entertainment. Again, I'm not saying any of those things are any more wrong than Dr. Pepper is wrong, but if you're living for that, and, and some people toil themselves, to, for some it's material success. And I remember when I first went to work out of college, I thought because I'm a Christian that I'll probably be a better worker than the other people. I was sadly mistaken because I it was newly married, and I was going to spend time with my wife, and I was involved in the church, and I had a life outside of this. There were people there whose idol was money and success, and I could never keep up with them. They toiled themselves to exhaustion. Their marriages were breaking up, but they wanted to win because they thought that would make them happy. Uh, there's actually been, again, on the research side with psychologists, research showing that income doesn't correlate to happiness. Even intelligence doesn't. It, prestige doesn't. Even sunny weather, good weather, I'm thankful to know that, uh, doesn't correspond to happiness. Because, again, what are we doing? We're trying to find joy. And C.S. Lewis, I'm not going to read the quotes, but kind of summarize them. He's saying that he has a quote where human, a human quest for joy is really nothing but a longing for heaven. And the things that we think are gonna make us happy are really just a shadow of a reality we know exists and haven't yet experienced. And so these yearnings we have that we want the highest high from whatever it is on the earth for which we long, and we think it's gonna make us happy if we were, as Ed was saying, if we were really truly human, if we were really the human beings that we're, we're designed to be, and we will be one day, then we would realize that satisfaction can only be found in one place. And even the legitimate enjoyment of earthly satisfaction is but a shadow of the satisfaction that God offers. And again, this isn't just the addicts, this is all of us. Today, every one of us is gonna be tempted to find something to make us happy. Again, it's not wrong to go enjoy your lunch when we're done, but to do so with thankfulness and to put it in its proper place. God alone brings us what is good and satisfying. 
Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. God is, is saying that if you're discontent, if you're empty, if you're stressed, if you're worried, if you're tempted by anger, if, if life just is a disappointment to you, as Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I, I like the way that's expressed because it's saying, give that one a try. And I've actually had experiences in my own life when I was feeling very sad and I was tempted to say, what will make me feel better? And my mind is filled with the earthly things that might make me feel better, some legitimate, some not. And I said, I'm gonna test God and I'm gonna, instead of doing any of those things right now, I'm actually gonna kind of do what the psalmist says because Peter quotes that in 1 Peter 2 where he talks about how we should be like newborn babes longing for the pure milk of the word if we've tasted of the goodness of God. I'm, I'm gonna spend some time and I'm gonna see if God can satisfy me right now as really low as I feel by just reading some scripture. You know what happened? It brought me joy. It lifted me out of my sorrow. I said, why don't I do this more often? I said to myself. It is God who offers us this delight. And, and even in, in Psalm 34, the context of Psalm 34, which I've understood better lately, is he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And, and that's in the context of David being assailed by all the bad guys. But we're being assailed by all kinds of temptations and we have our own bad guys in the world today. And maybe you're stressed about the politics or the environment or the North Koreans or your teenage kids. And what is, what is the answer? Cry out to God like David did. Taste and see the goodness of God. Make it your life's work to learn how to enjoy him. It's, it's what John Piper's been about. You know, John Piper just keeps writing the same book over and over again <laughs> and preaching the same sermon over and over again, but he's got a point, right? To learn to desire God, to learn to find that he himself is more delightful than everything else. <coughs> to see and again, I'm speaking to the cream of the crop because you're here at 11.30 on Saturday morning on a beautiful day because you long for the things of the word of God more than you would enjoy being outside right now, at least those of you here voluntarily. And, <laughs> but to learn just that to be in church tomorrow <coughs> to read your Bible daily, these are not just the pharisaical disciplines of a good person so you can live a better life. To really see that is that I yearn to be with the people of God. I yearn for the means of grace that are gonna feed my soul. I yearn in the day to see in my daily Bible reading what new thing God will say to me. I'm, I'm coming like a baby who woke up after sleeping for five or six hours and he will not be satisfied until he has a good meal. And I'm not saying this as someone who's mastered this. I'm saying this is what I need. I need to be that person who seeks satisfaction and joy where God offers it. And not to see it as a grim duty, but as a delight. Amen. And it's, it's turning from those idols to the living God that's the key to overcoming addiction. And again, I'm, I'm reviewing what the others have said. It's, it's a, a change of worship 
And yet what God offers is rich. And, and this is the wonderful thing. Some people look at Christian counseling as where Ed began on the Thursday night, stop it. You know, just stop smoking that, drinking that, eating that, whatever you're doing, just stop doing that bad thing and be a better person. That's so far away from what Isaiah 55 is saying. Isaiah 55 is saying, because I love you, I hate watching you eat poison plastic bread. <laughs> I hate watching you drink sewage when there's a banquet awaiting you. There's one of the old hymns we haven't sung this week, grieving over those who would rather starve than come to the banquet of God. Sometimes we as believers are starving ourselves. And, and to recognize that God, when he, when he tells us to stop, he tells us to stop because he loves us. And he doesn't just take away our cherished little idol, he gives us something much better. It's like if you have a child who's playing with a, a dangerous object, a knife that could harm him, you could just grab the knife and say, stop it. And that toddler might not understand, he might scream. If you bring him a big can of Dr. Pepper, <laughs> big piece of chocolate and say, give me the knife and I'll give you the chocolate. Or just, he'll grab the chocolate to let go of the knife. That's what God does. He says, I'm going to invite you to leave Madame Folly's banquet that has never once satisfied you and invite you to the banquet of Lady Wisdom. I'm going to invite you to this feast. It's a feast for which you were made. You were created to enjoy this feast. Not this junk you've been eating. And not only that, you're gonna be feasting like this forever. And you'll never be too full. You'll never be tired of the diet. And again, I need to grow in adjusting my appetite now for what I'm going to be feasting upon forever. And you know, he, he gives specifically, okay, without money, without cost, come buy wine and milk. If you're thirsty, come to the waters. And you know, all these cravings that we have and uh, being in a dry place, which at least here we can picture, but in Palestine they didn't have water coming in through pipes in the Sierras like we do, and water was important. But it's used in the Bible as a symbol of a spiritual thirst for God. Wine to make your heart glad. I'm not sure Dr. Hodges is still here for that one from the psalm. Uh, a symbolized symbol of the joy that God gives us in life. Milk, nourishment, uh, this is what God did in the Exodus. And God is constantly using, you know, he gave them water from the rock, bread from heaven. It's what he's saying will happen again when they return from the exile. In chapter 49, verse 10, they will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them. He will guide them to springs of water. It's what, We've also had quoted, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's not that we don't eat bread at all, but to feed upon that, it's not just earthly bread. And then, where do we get this realistically? Well, you, you go to the Gospel of John, and how does Jesus describe his ministry to us? Well, in John chapter four, verse 13, he says, Every new, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. 
But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty. She didn't yet get what he was saying. But that's what he's promising, that you go up, you, you know, you've heard the story of the woman at the well and carrying the water, what a hassle that was. Uh, our thirst for that earthly water, he says, I've come to, to satisfy what the human experience of thirst was supposed to teach you. <laughs> you know, our, our experience of hunger and thirst physically was designed by God, in, at least in one aspect of us, to teach us of our need for him. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, on the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Then in John chapter 6, he says, Whoever believes in me has eternal life. In verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus Christ has come into the world and he's, he's giving this same picture as Isaiah 55. And I don't think it's a coincidence. There's a lot of similar language there. It pops up at the end of Revelation as well. He says, I've come to bring... What Isaiah wrote about, what the manna symbolized. You've got this physical experience of hunger and thirst, but that's the yearning of your soul for a satisfaction that the satisfaction after being thirsty or hungry is just, again, it's this little image of it. It's just a little puffy cloud compared to the reality of the satisfaction I have come to give you. And, and of course, we know he did that at Grace Call. How did he do it? It's by his body bearing in his person our sin on the cross, dying in our place, shedding his blood, being raised from the dead. He says, I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly. You know, everybody's looking for life. Everyone looks for abundance. Everybody's looking for what's going to make them happy. And then here's the, it's not a secret. It's, he's, he's begging people to hear him. He's, he's saying, you want life. Everything everybody's yearning for, everything the addict, the slave to sin is trying to find in his substance and his addiction is found in the living water and the bread of life which Christ offers freely. And that's, again, back to our text. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That sounds like a contradiction. You buy it, but you don't have to pay. And yet, I, I like the, both sides of the picture because it's bringing out the freeness of the gospel, which is beautiful, but yet there is still a sense in which you're making a decision to make a purchase. You're actually, like Paul says of the Thessalonians, you're abandoning your old idols to pursue God. You're giving up the polluted wells that have done nothing but made you sick to drink from the living water. You're turning from one thing to another. And there's a, a great sense in which it is free. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet, in another sense, it's very expensive because you deny yourself, you turn your back on the world, and you follow him. It's free because somebody else paid, and that's back in chapter 53. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. For our idolatry, for our willful choice for a lifetime to seek is the chief end of our lives, our own happiness and satisfaction, the very thing that psychologists say is the chief end of man, which is the great sin of man. For all of our sin, Christ has died. For all who will believe in him, he's, he's borne the punishment we deserve. And as 2 Corinthians 8 9 says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made not just debt free, but rich. What the gospel offers is not just to take away the guilt of your sin. The, the gospel offers to make you rich. Becoming a Christian is not losing anything worthwhile. It's gaining everything worthwhile. And so, as you look, and this is for the addict, as you look at your sin, as the passage is saying, none of that's ever helped you. None of that's ever satisfied you. You keep going back for more. It's just so foolish. What you seek is found in Christ, and you're not going to lose. You're not going to miss what you gave up because it never did you any good. And, and the yearning you had for satisfaction and joy, the reality is going to be given to you in Christ as a gift. But you may not like the price. Here's another contrast between us and secular programs. Secular programs often are penance. You do these several things. You work the program. When you've worked the program, you're declared uh, in remission, I guess they would say, or something of whatever disease you had. But it's what you do. We're saying, no, it's not what you do. You can't do it. You can't become what God wants you to be by your own efforts. You have to admit you're completely helpless, without money, without price, to confess I have no goodness of my own, no merit of my own, no ability of my own. I come and receive the rich gift of God as the gift it is coming because God did all the work on the cross and I receive it by faith. I like what Spurgeon says about this is every other salesman cannot get his customer up to his price. My difficulty is I can't get them down to mine. They will still haggle and try to do something or be something or promise something. These are the terms in which the gospel of grace may be had without money and without price. You can't bring your morality. You can't bring your religion. You can't bring your steps. All you can do is say, as a sinner, God save me. But he wants you to come. At the very end of our Bibles, Actually, at the very end of our Bibles, you have a great banquet at the end of Revelation. But the, verse 17 of the last chapter of the Bible, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Sounds like Isaiah 55. If you're not yet a believer... God wants you to know you've been wasting your life, even if you're not an addict. 
You may even be self-righteous and think, well, I've never been drunk or I used to smoke pot. I don't do that anymore. You're still an addict. You're still a slave to sin, whatever your sin may be. And part of your slavery may be to self-righteousness and thinking you're good when you don't measure up to God's standard, seeking happiness apart from him. But I have wonderful news for you today. He wants you to come. He invites you to leave the sludge you've been trying to eat that's never satisfied you and to come to his banquet and to feast on Christ who will forgive your sin and give you what you were made for, the joy and satisfaction only God can offer. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. It also says seek the Lord while he may be found. Today's the day. He wants you to find him. He seeks you. Turn to him. Believe upon him. Forsake your ways. His ways are not your ways. Your ways are not his ways. Repent of your ways and embrace his ways. And that's a message we all need. When we turn back to our sin, what should we do? What should I do when I went back to that idol I thought I'd crushed 40 years ago and I became a Christian? Should I wallow in it? Should I surrender and just say, you know, I'm hopeless anyway, I might as well just give in to it? No, God would say, seek me while I may be found. Call upon me while I am near. Forsake your way, come to me. Confess your sin, I will forgive you. Come back to me. I know you're weak, I know you're struggling. Repent of seeking that which never satisfies you and turn to me and I will forgive you. I will restore you. The Lord is compassionate and forgiving. Even just little words in the text, he will abundantly pardon. Sometimes you're tempted to think when you failed so many times, I think I may have run out of chances. Well, if you're dealing with the DMV, that may be accurate. (laughs) But God abundantly pardons. When we fail, when we struggle, His ways are not, I think part of his ways not being our ways is I wouldn't put up with me. But his ways are gracious. And then, and in the end of both, there are two sections in the passage, verses one to five and then six to the end. In both there are these promises, uh, incline your ear to me and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant. He's saying when you come you'll experience all the blessings of the Davidic promises. And then likewise, at the end of the passage, for you will, verse 12, you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. The trees of the field will clap their hands. That as you do turn to God, all that you were made to be will come into being. All that the creation was meant to be for you and us in the creation will ultimately come to being when Christ comes again. The exodus, the restoration are mere pictures of the new creation God gives. It's simple. Everything other than God will never satisfy you and the evil one would love to enslave you. God alone will fill the emptiness. 
God alone will bring you satisfaction. In the last few minutes, I've got some notes at the end I just want to summarize because I've known these things for a really long time and I still struggle. Do you? What can I tell myself? What can I do to learn better how to turn from idols to eat at the Lord's banquet? It's tough. And I've got a list of, and it's really summarizing the conference. What, what, what do I need to do when I feel that tug, that, that half gallon of bluebell that I left in my freezer in North Carolina, which actually is a pretty safe place for it right now. Uh, but it's calling to me when I'm, my stomach's already full, but I'm feeling down. Or what if it was that you were, I've, I've known Christian men and they were drunkards and they hadn't had a drink in 20 years, or they hadn't been drunk in 20 years, and, and then after a really hard day, they're still feeling the call of their old slave master to come back. What do I do? Well, I've just got a few things as a list. What do I need? I need to talk to myself. As Lloyd-Jones says, stop listening to yourself, start talking to yourself. I need to see my sin as it really is. That when I have these desires, and I think that something in this earth is gonna fill the emptiness and satisfy my soul. That is the evil one talking. He is the father of lies and a murderer. Idols lie. They will tell you they're gonna make you happy and they never do. They promise you freedom but give you slavery. Idols kill. We've seen that with drug addiction. We've seen that with alcohol addiction. We've seen that with sexual sin, gambling. The evil one is a murderer. I need to see sin as what it really is. And then I need to see myself as I am in Christ. Whoever's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. Romans six eleven. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. I need to remember I am no longer a slave. Sometimes I even feel like a slave, but I'm not a slave. I need to remember what Christ has done for me, that my old self has died. Having been bought with a price, I now can glorify God with my body. I need to see God as he really is. I thought, uh, I think it was an Ed session. It was a good job how Eve was deceived because the serpent convinced her that God was trying to withhold something good from her. That's what we do. We think, oh, you know, this whatever it is will, will make me feel good. No, God is a gracious and loving God who wants what is best for you. That when you've sinned, he wants you to come and find pardon and when you're empty, he wants you to come and find satisfaction. And, and the key is to realize in the moment of yearning that Jesus Christ is more satisfying. The bread of life and the living water is more satisfying to my soul than whatever it is that is tempting me right now. Is that true? When I fail, I'm acting like it's not true. And then I need to seek after him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. I like you know, when James says, if you want wisdom, ask God, but don't be double-minded about it. With all of your heart, seek after him. Taste and see. Pursue him and see if he will not satisfy your soul when you're sad, when you're stressed, rather than chasing idols. So I need to think. I need to speak to myself. And then what can I do? I need to fight sin. Flee youthful lusts. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. Uh, stop hiding. Tell others about your struggle in the body. Seek accountability. 
Sin flourishes alone. Idolatry flourishes alone. Hebrews 3, 13. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what friendship, discipleship, and counseling are. If you are struggling, seek help from brothers and sisters who can help you. And then practice feasting at the Lord's table. Like a newborn babe, 1 Peter 2, to learn to long for the pure milk of the word. Because you've tasted, have you tasted of the goodness of God? Remember the goodness of that taste and read the word, seek after God. Enjoy the public means of grace. Don't forsake assembling together, but enjoy as God's people come together for the ministry of the word and prayer and the Lord's Supper and, and fellowship. And then, instead of using people, serve people. We've talked about that as well. To bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Let him who steals steal no more, but work with his hands and share with those in need. And then, and this is a funny one, but it's actually something I got to have a booklet by David Pallison. And that is, to feast at the Lord's table does not mean you become an ascetic who doesn't enjoy life. You enjoy the gifts of God, but just in their proper place. Uh, Paul warns in 1 Timothy 4 about those who make extra rules forbidding marriage and abstaining from foods, but he says, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. And so, as one whose great joy is in the Lord, we can enjoy a meal, we can enjoy marriage, we can enjoy earthly pleasures, rest, as a foretaste of heaven, as gifts from the good God who loves us, and enjoy them in their proper place that he's given us, to do so with thanksgiving. Apart from Christ, there is no joy. There is no way you can counsel an addict that's gonna solve his problem other than that he would be redeemed and turned from idols to serve the living God. The word of God being so powerful and so mighty can transform lives, makes us servants of God who find our satisfaction and our joy in him. First, we need to do this because we struggle. And then we are surrounded by people who desperately need this message. They're going to experts, even medical experts, who have no understanding of what's wrong with them and offer them very bad cures. The word of God has the answers. Let us be the voice of God to the church and to the world. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Feast at the Lord's table. And you will have the joy, the peace, the satisfaction for which you have been made. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your word, that even the abstract concepts of satisfaction and joy and peace and futility are put so vividly in passages like Isaiah 55 and John 6 and so many other places. Yet, Lord, we are prone to wander. We are still tempted, even as believers, to go back to that which will never fill our souls. Lord, give us grace 
to learn to feast at your table. Give us grace to turn away from the idols which would enslave us and help us to be faithfully ministering your mighty word and the power of your spirit to people in our churches and outside of our churches who desperately need this message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.